Welcome to episode 342 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I am Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. For you, there's nothing in this world I wouldn't do. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. With this episode, we got three left. Three remaining words of the ten that we've been going through. And the conversation has been rich. I hope people, if they've just jumped into the midst of this, are checking out some of the back catalog. We've kind of presumed that this idea of looking at the Ten Commandments as the moral law is really grounded in the nature of God. They all reflect his character. And because of that, they're permanent and binding. The scripture just presumes this on us. You know, Paul assumes that we understand this distinction. And it's why he distinguishes in Romans 2, for instance, those who were in the law from those who sinned lawlessly. This law being the standard by which sin is judged, the blessing that God gives to us through Christ and his own obedience so that it is now satisfied. And so we are again saved not by good works, but for good works. And so the law becomes duty and devotion in the most amazing kind of freedom inspired way. So hopefully that's all something we said before. I always like to bring that up. So as people hear us talk about this and we're going to get into what it means to say thou shalt not steal. One other thing before we do affirmations denials, I just wanted to note because sometimes I manufacture maybe objections. This is like puritanical, Puritan style, like objections that people might have as they listen to us as I think about the things we talked about. One of those might be that, are we doing this thing where we spend a whole hour, and let's not get ourselves, we spend 20 minutes talking about the topic, and we really dive into both what's forbidden, but what's required. And of course, we're just standing on the shoulders of so many giants who have come before us to present that rubric, and I think it is a helpful one. Are we somehow reading too much into this? I mean, isn't it just on the face? And I want to say, listen, it's not like we're trying to get inception style on these 10 words. What it is, if we understand the moral law to be this reflection of God's character, it's an invitation to study so that we see all facets of it. And while we know that the Bible is so far in many ways beyond coming wisdom and understanding that we will not comp- comprehend all of it, there is something in there that's beautiful. And I always think of like Proverbs 25 too. It's the glory of God to conceal a thing, but it's the honor of kings to search out a matter. And that's really what we're after here. It's not just what's on the face. That itself is important. Yeah. We're trying to search out all of the matters. We want all the stuff. Turn it over and over and over again because everything is within it. So that's why we keep coming back to this. We're not trying to impute, to try to find like the meaning or the hidden value behind the thing. It's actually that God has given us these laws, these 10 words, to really have an invitation, a window, I suppose, if you will, into his character. But we have to peer in, right? We have to like, up our hands around our eyes sometimes and try to really look intently inside to see what's going on because it's the glory of God to conceal a thing, but it's the honor of kings to search it out. So speaking of searching out some things, let's start out, search out a little affirmation, a little denial. What do you want to start with or what do you want to end with? What, what do you want to do? Well, why don't we do a little sandwich action here? So w- let's do affirmations and then denials. And then I have another another little affirmation to sneak in at the end of it. So let's, let's make a little affirmation sandwich here. Okay. You kick us off. What are you affirming with? So I'm, I'm affirming, um, this is like the most, one of the most nerdy affirmations that I've had in a while. Um, so we've talked before about our shared love for stationery and pens and stuff like that. And I've been using these, um, I discovered these while I was in seminary. It was erasable highlighters. And the 
the brand is Pilot, and the style or the the model number, I guess, is Friction, F-R-I-X-I-O-N. And when I started doing bullet journaling, I started using one of their Friction black pens. You just get it at like Staples or Office Depot or whatever. And I recently went online and discovered they make refillable Friction click pens but they're 0.5 millimeters. So they're nice and thin. They have a nice fine point. Uh, it's called the Friction Ball Knock, K-N-O-C-K. I also don't know why, but there are some sort of Asian characters. I'm not sure whether they are uh, Japanese or Korean. I don't know. But on the, the markings here, there's some sort of Asian characteristics, some sort of Asian-like lettering. So I ordered this on Amazon. I don't know if it came from from Asia. I don't know if that's the origin of this or I don't know, maybe the guy who made this package is an anime fan or something, but these pens are awesome. They have a regular like click um, to open and close the pen. So you don't have to worry about losing a cap, which I do all the time. Um, they have the standard friction eraser. They erase nice and clean. Um, and since they are a thin point, they're even easier to erase and they're easier to write with and they are refillable. So if you run out of ink, you don't need to buy a whole new pen. You can just buy a pack of three or four um, refills until you are out of those and then you buy more. But they're awesome. They're just really great. And the, the ink is uh, good ink. It dries quickly. So as a lefty, it doesn't smear all over the place. Um, it doesn't fade as far as I can tell super easily. Uh, it requires, the reason they're called friction is because it requires that you, you generate a little bit of heat with the eraser for it to loose up the bonds of the ink. And then that's how it erases off. So yeah, if you're looking for a new pen and you want something that you can erase easily, then this is the way you go. Friction, ball, knock. F-R-I-X-I-O-N. Friction. And in typical fashion, though, we have not talked about these things until just this moment. I actually was afraid for about two seconds that you were about to actually steal my affirmation because I'm going to try to equal you in the nerdiness. Oh, I'm affirming something I sent to you, I think, earlier this week, and that is jet pens. This is a thing. It's a website. Jetpens.com is basically a purveyor of all kinds of stationary supplies, but they have a blog. Why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't a stationary <laughs> have a blog? That, that's like so nerdy. This is nerd inception. And I'm particularly affirming an article on that blog called 42 Best Pens for 2023 Gel, Ballpoint, Rollerball, and Fountain Pens. So if you want a good website for pens, stationary jet pens is it. Just search for the 42 Best Pens for 2023. This bad boy will come up. But here's why I'm affirming it, much like you. I was amazed, just like dumbfounded at this list because they do this lovely thing. And this is not elitist, by the way. Like the pens on here are all like very affordable. You know, they're mostly yeah. in like the you know, like three to ten dollar range, but they are so serious about this. Like, even for me, a little uncomfortable in how serious they are about this list. And I love that they've created categories. For instance, one category is the best pens for pens for left-handed writers, or the best pens for journaling and planning, best pens for school, best pens for everyday use. There's so many lovely different distinctions here that I'm sure you should just go to it just out of like morbid curiosity yeah. and just kind of unbridled interest. But if you're looking for like that elusive great unicorn pen, I'm guessing it's somewhere on this list. They have links to everything. You can purchase them even from their site or from Amazon. They're all really affordable, but it was so fun to see like, well, I would like to see what is the best like fine tip pen for writing or the best ergonomic pen or the most comfortable one or the best gel pen or the one that's best for these. Or I was amazed by this. There's a whole section in the best pens for school. 
in that section, a subclassification is best pen for note-taking. And I was amazed to see that they're recommending some pens that are really good for if you take notes and then highlight over your notes. So it's yeah. not so much. So like, this is like all kinds of levels of nerddom, but I would say like, doesn't everybody love the simple pleasure of a really nice writing utensil? Yeah. It was just like a glorious thing that gives, we should ought to worship God for like, that somebody's designed and there's like a lot of intricate design some of these things and the fact that they're so affordable is amazing so yeah. uh, th that's it everybody can go check it out the 42 best pens for 2023 it's no matter who you are even if you haven't written anything in a long time it's worth checking out i will note that the friction uh eraser pens are on this list i didn't even see that when i looked through this the last time yeah they are that's what that's what inspired me i i really thought you were about to steal it because you were like this no. is super nerdy and we talk about stationary which is true and he, this this is like, this website is like the gold standard for me. Because just as with the pens, there's a whole site for mechanical pencils. Yep. And I have a thing for mechanical pencils. So there's all kinds of great stuff. You can, you can lose a lot of time just searching this stuff. Yeah, I mean, they have a whole thing for journals and like notebooks. So it's pretty amazing. <laughs> how to journal. There's like a whole article about how to do journaling. Yeah, it's super fun little blog. So anyway, I think we both, let's see now if our denials are in the same realm. I'm going to guess they're not. But if for some reason you start a denial that's like within 10 words of how I'm going to start mine, I'm going to lose my mind. So <laughs> what are you denying against? Oh, I have to try to guess what you're going to do and then mess with your head. <laughs> I don't uh, think this is possible. I, I'm denying against a new podcast that some people have probably How dare you? How no, dare I'm I? Um, I want to be charitable i don't think that the people who are doing this are somehow like evil terrible wicked sinners any more than the rest of us i suppose uh there is this new podcast called the haunted cosmos uh it's by a guy named brian sabe who we've talked about before um who had the king's hall podcast that i very tentatively recommended and then after listening a little bit more i backed off of um he seems like an all right dude but he's very into the patriarchy shock jock kind of christianity which whatever to each his own, I guess. But this podcast is basically like a Christian version of like paranormal exploration. So they take a, a paranormal phenomena of some sort uh, and then they, they look at it and they investigate it. They tell a bunch of stories and they only have like four or five episodes. It's a fairly predictable arc is here's a bunch of stories. Uh, here's, here's some other stories, uh, plot twist. It's they're all demons. Um, so on one level, they're probably not wrong. <laughs> they're probably not wrong in that most of the the paranormal activity and stuff that they're exploring are is demonic in nature. Um, however, the podcast represents a sort of, in my opinion, a sort of strange overfixation and overfascination, uh, and in some ways, almost an over spiritualization of some things. So the the first. Uh, the first sort of red flag that I ran into was they did a, a they did a two part episode, but they did an episode on um, the Mothman, which is like this this well known paranormal account. And in, in uh, there's all sorts of stuff to it, but they quoted a guy who was saying like, well, elemental spirits are all they're all demons, and uh, people probably people probably can stay on Earth after they die. Like very much not the not the typical Christian biblical explanation. They just sort of fawned all over this this guy who I later found out has been like excommunicated from his church is under you know facing church discipline and there's no like no weight given to the fact that this guy may not be a reliable 
witness. <laughs> um, so I, I don't want to say check it out. I mean, it's entertaining if you uh, really want to check it out. It's it's a well-made podcast. It's well-produced. But it represents a sort of over fascination with. And it's it's ironic because that passage out of Proverbs that you, you, you quoted earlier, they use that to say like, well, God hides these paranormal things and it's his glory to hide them, but it's the glory of kings to seek them out. So they use that passage in Proverbs to say like, we really need to investigate things like, like Bigfoot or like the Loch Ness Monster. And we really need to, they're, they're real. They, you know, aliens are real and they're probably demons. And, um, which again, some of their conclusions probably are not even not even wrong. Um, I'm just not sure that it's beneficial or fruitful for us as Christians to spend a lot of time uh, overly fixated on these things. Um, and I think it, it does lead to a sort of um, an overly ready acceptance of things like ghosts, um, things like psychic abilities, um, giving credence to the idea that that maybe people can move things with their minds. And that's like a natural feature of humanity. We just haven't discovered yet, um, which is something that that the guy they quoted favorably explicitly said is that some, some people can move things with their minds. We don't understand the power of the mind um, that there are, are really people who die and their spirits linger on earth, which is not something the Bible really makes space for. So I know, like I said, don't, I don't want to say, check it out. It's not the worst thing in the world. If you listen to it, it's not like you're doing some huge, terrible thing. I just don't think it's super helpful and super beneficial for us. There's this weird kind of spiritualist movement, isn't there? Where it's sometimes manifested in this kind of fascination where it's, you want to somehow convey that the spiritual realm is real and present, yeah. all things we would agree with. And yet you want to dislocate from any actual knowledge about that besides like any, all, your own observation. Right. And it's like crazy to me in the sense that you have all these people saying, well, we really ought to understand this, but we really don't want to go to the truth of where we ought to take right. all of our cues from, which again, I know is Adventures in Romans 1, but above and beyond that, sometimes you have Christians who are saying the same thing. And it's, yeah. we're not going to the scriptures. Instead, we're just saying, well, we know that we, we acknowledge that there is a spiritual realm because we're willing to give intellectual assent to God himself and to demons by extension. However, we'd prefer not to bring any doctrine into this. We just yeah. want to talk about it and make it consume all of our thoughts and be overly and overtly concerned about it without really knowing what it's all about and whether you should be concerned at that level to begin with. So yeah. it's just, it's to me like an extension of this kind of spiritualist movement, the kind of thing that says like, well, I'm not a religious person, but I am very, very spiritual. And that seems to me like it can be a fool's errand of its own kind. And then it sometimes gets manifest in this. And I see this all around, even where I, where I live, I live not far from Gettysburg and it's very common for all of like the ghost tours, stuff like this. We, we just give like assent to those things. We generally speaking, like the Royal we in that case to this idea that all oh, these spirits are present and we can go visit and hang out with them. And again, like that is such like a pernicious lie, isn't yeah. it? It's so destructive. It's blasphemous in a way. Because, of course, we're not imbibing the truth of God and applying it properly. But more than that, I've seen this be such a distraction to people in a profound way. So getting it right here and not contributing to that, that noise too much is really important. So I like that. I think that's kind of like a distinction and a denial, isn't it? It's a bit like saying, listen, it's worth knowing that people understand and process things this way. However, it's also a grand warning to say, don't do this thing. Yeah. And I mean, I think some, 
some speculation on these things is warranted. It's it's undeniable that some people have some sort of experience that's not explainable sure. by natural means. Um, but the, the the idea that a group of Christians uh, and actually the late Michael Heiser, it's it's very similar to his outlook on things. Michael Heiser was a scholar who worked for Logos for a, a long time. He had a podcast called The Naked Bible. Um, he just recently died of, uh, I think, pancreas cancer. And, you know, he had this perspective. His most One of his most famous books was called Unseen Realms. And, and it was very much like when the Bible talks about these pagan gods that, or when it uses the word Elohim, it's talking about supernatural, uh, you know, existing uh, entities. And I don't know, I don't know that that's necessarily even wrong. I think that a good argument can be made that, I think I've even mentioned this before, that like the Greek gods and the, the Canaanite gods and the Egyptian gods, that those probably probably were not entirely fabricated and probably represented uh, or probably were demons masquerading as gods, setting themselves up as right. as authorities. Um, but that doesn't mean that every paranormal thing – and when I say paranormal, I don't mean supernatural. I just mean unexplainable by normal, normal mechanisms. Um, you know, like they would go so far and I don't know that they've done this, but again, this guy that they were quoting heavily, um, he says that Bigfoot is probably a Nephilim. He's probably like a fallen angel. So it, there's a lot of weird speculation and over fixation on this that I just don't think we yes. need to do. You saw a ghost. Great. It was probably a demon. And like, that's, that's the amount of speculation that I think we need. You saw a disembodied floating spirit. Okay. I can concede that that may have happened, but it wasn't a human spirit. It was a demon masquerading as a human spirit. Um, whereas this kind of show sort of gives, opens the door and gives a little bit of, a little bit of credence to the fact that, yeah, maybe it was actually a human spirit, um, which I just think is, it's dangerous. There's an over fascination with it. And I think that opens us up to some unhealthy influences from the spiritual world. Like we're not told to, we're not told to study the spirits in, in this right. way. We're told to test the spirits. We're told to test the spirits and see if they're from God. We're not told to invest hours and hours trying to ascertain if this this appearance of of Bigfoot is a elemental spirit or if it's a principality. You know, like it very much strikes me as almost like old school Frank Peretti, like piercing the darkness stuff that uh, just it actually overly naturalizes the supernatural. Um, so yeah, I don't know if there's much more to say about it. If you are really interested in hearing more about what I'm saying and, and sort of testing it for yourself, you guys are reasonable people. We we don't want you to we don't we don't typically want to say, don't read this, don't check this out. Right. I don't know that it's beneficial for us to spend a lot of time on it, but if you're interested in checking it out, you want to verify what I have to say, um, you can check it out. It's called the Haunted Haunted Cosmos. You can get find it on any podcast app or um, I'm sure they have a website, a Facebook group, all that stuff. Well, I was correct that my denial is so far away from that <laughs> and is probably both a little bit lighter and a little bit nerdy. And I'm actually asking, eliciting, if you will, pleading for some feedback on this first from you and then also maybe for some other listeners. They can email us at reformed, excuse me, info at reformedbrotherhood.com or better yet, just join our little telegram chat at t.me backslash reformedbrotherhood. And you can let me know if either you resonate with this or if I am just off the mark. So I'm going to provide a warning. I may just be bemoaning this subject, but you all, as you've already said, Tony, are reasonable people. I'll let you be the judge. So here's what I'm denying against. COVID, of course, changed our world in so many ways. Insert all the stuff about changes in the world because of COVID, yada, yada, yada. 
here's one of the things that I'm denying against that COVID change. And that is, to me, the casualization of the male business casual dress code. <laughs> now, I recognize this. The reason why I'm asking for some feedback is because this may just be like my penchant, my jam, my sense of what's comfortable to me. But I just really love good men's like business casual attire. And what I'm talking about generally is like button down collared shirt and a tie. The denial comes from what I'm realizing now is because we've become so casual and it's become acceptable and that in itself can be often a good thing. But here's the, the strange rub on this is that sometimes and increasingly when you dress in a more kind of previously business casual way with like a tie, it comes across as elitist. Yeah. Like you're disconnected. You're dislocated from those who are around you or you're trying to convey something. I think like, I love that attire. It's comfortable to me. I feel productive in it. And so things like cufflinks and just like a tie nowadays come across as like, what are you trying to prove? Yeah. Like, what is it that you're trying to communicate? <laughs> what, really just like, well, nothing. And because I've spent all my career in finance, to me, there are still some industries where I think you want to have a person in front of you convey that they are serious or disciplined. And part of the way they do that is by the way they dress again, not to like signal in a false way, but merely to show like the volition or initiative. So like, I presume like in your, your line of work, for instance, Tony, like people still want to see like doctors in some kind of attire, either like the coats or they want to see like a collared shirt. They, they probably, unless like it's emergency or they know the doctor particularly well, they've already established a relationship of trust. They probably don't want to see like the doctor in like a, deep V t-shirt and like just jeans. You know what I mean? Like, especially if you yeah. meet somebody for the first time who you don't know. So in finance, I feel the same way. Like I would think you want to walk into a place where you're looking for help about something like money, something we're going to talk about actually in this, this conversation, that it's helpful to have a well-dressed individual. And this can also kind of, I would say, bleed into the Lord's day. And we don't need to get into all that stuff. There's certainly nothing that in the scriptures that say like you must dress in this kind of way to go participate in corporate worship. At the same time, I think there's also something noble or otherwise, like if you want to dress up, dress up. If you don't want to dress up, don't dress up. However, I'm just really denying against the over-casualization that happened in menswear following COVID, but as well, like maybe the sometimes, if I can be a little bit candid, judgmentalism that comes with returning to that style and it being perceived as elitist. Yeah. So I'll stop. What say you? I think this is a trend that actually goes back before before COVID. Most things that we say uh, as a, a culture now that we say like COVID really changed something, I think what actually happens is just really accelerated something that was already going on. So I remember um, when I worked for Geek Squad, it, it was the big deal that we still wore ties, even though they were clip-on ties. When we went to corporate, um, when I was working at corporate, and I would wear my Geek Squad uniform, it was it was unusual for people to be wearing ties unless they were Geek Squad employees wearing their geek squad uniforms. So I think, um, I think that's a trend that's been going on for quite a long time. Um, I don't miss that that much personally. <laughs> um, I, I just don't, um, I, I like a little bit more of a dress down look, but also the nature of my work, it, it, it actually helps me to be a little bit less formal when I'm working with patients because I, I want to come across as someone who's approachable and accessible and kind of one of one of the people. Um, that sounds like super pejorative. I, I am one of the people. I'm not some special person, but I want people who come into my office not to feel like they're coming to a professional's office. They, they, they're coming to someone who they can resonate with. But at, at least at the hospital where I work, 
doctors are still expected to be wearing things like a dress down shirt and a tie underneath their lab coat. And they're expected to, their strict standards. They have to wear a lab coat when they're in, in clinic. Um, I'm not allowed, for example, I'm not allowed to wear a lab coat. So even if I could get one, I'm not allowed to wear one because that signifies a certain thing. Um, and I have experienced it on the rare occasions where I do dress up and wear a tie. Um, that's funny that I even see dress up, but I do, I do don full business casual and I wear a tie to work. It never fails that someone asks me if I have a job interview. Yes, so there is this exactly. assumption that if you're if you're dressed above sort of like casual Friday level casual, that something is and usually for me that's usually the case. It means I have a big meeting with somebody in the executive office, or I'm meeting with a patient that I can sense needs a more professional approach, or something like that. I'm meeting with a vendor or something. So yeah, I think I hear what you're saying. I don't miss the I don't miss that kind of dress code. Um, it used to be that as a scheduling secretary, I was required to wear a tie, even though I never saw a patient in my entire life when I was working that way. Um, I still was required to wear a, a dress shirt and tie and, and dress slacks to work. And I got sent home one time because they weren't ironed. <laughs> so it used to be that way. And it just really isn't anymore. Yeah, it definitely, of course, started before COVID. What I'm noticing is that all of the holdouts fell during COVID, yes. like the last bastions of that kind of philosophy, particularly in areas of things like finance, is yeah. where it finally fell away. And before before then, you could dress in a certain way, I think, as, as a dude in like most Western cultures without anybody saying, like, why are you wearing a tie? Yeah. But now it's like, why are you wearing a tie? And I will bemoan this. Part, really, it's the tie that fell away, particularly for men, I think, at least yeah. in our culture. But what didn't happen as a fall away was the suit. So now there's like the the casual look is like a suit with no tie. And I just, yeah. me personally, I don't really love that look. Yeah. That's like what you wear when you're going out to like the, to get drinks with your guy friends for a bachelor I, yeah, party. Yeah, I guess like, so. Yeah, but maybe I'm I'm I uh, you know doing the very judgmental thing that I'm accusing you know everybody else of doing that's that's unfair. But uh, yeah, anyway, I just love maybe this is because of my closet is full of ties. It's probably because I went to private school and always had to wear a tie from a youngster on. So like to me that is a comfortable look and I, I feel more productive in it. But I, I do wonder about this thing, and this is where our listeners can help. Is you know if you let's say you're walking into a bank, your bank or some other bank, you're trying to get a mortgage, or you're going to talk about your retirement, or you're meeting with a financial advisor. I wonder, would you prefer the person to be dressed a particular way? Or does that not really matter? Especially if you're meeting somebody for the first time yeah. or you're going in to get help and you don't know the person that you're going to be sitting across the desk from. Does it matter? I don't know. I mean, maybe we're as a society, we're just kind of like, listen, we judge everybody now, not on the outside, but by the content, the character of their hearts and their minds and their usefulness to us. No. Maybe that's what's happening. No. But I, I think it has a value. And I, I hope that our institutions are still able to communicate that in a way that's helpful and useful and productive. But yeah. For the time being, I'm still going to put on the tie every now and again because a tie is just it's just classic, especially the bow tie. Yeah. What I find is it's it seems like the style for dress attire for work is shifting away from sort of like a professional class style of dress to more of a branded style. So like when you go into the to the credit union where I do my banking, uh, nobody is wearing like dress clothes, but they all have some sort of branded clothing on. So like it's clear that their the institution has provided them with branded sweaters and branded vests and and things like that. Um, we have uh, when I first started working at the hospital, we weren't allowed to wear anything that was branded. So even if we had it, we weren't allowed to wear it to work. And now I can get away with I can get away with wearing a long sleeve white t shirt 
with a fleece vest over it as long as it's branded. No one even bats an eye at it. Um, you know, I, I look like a, I like a one of those like classic Baptist dad memes of wearing like a like a sweater vest that's got like a little logo on it, and, and it. nobody even cares. So I think you're right. I think that the, the temperature and the, the direction of things is just changing. It's just changing. It may make me an old man. The last thing I'll say is like, for those who are thinking like, so I'm 42, for those who are thinking, wow, what kind of world did you live in and how is that even possible? When I first started as a financial advisor, and I'll, I'll leave the broker dealer unnamed so as to protect all of the innocent, it's long been dissolved and purchased by another organization. But the standard was two things. One, it was that only and only a white collared button down shirt with tie was appropriate. You could wear a blue shirt on dress down days. That was the dress down yeah. was having a blue shirt. And the second thing that was required is all shirts had to be French cuff, which is like cufflinks. So that maybe that was overkill, but they were trying to convey something to your point. That was the brand. Right. The brand was, we look a particular way because we are trying to ingratiate ourselves. So when I first started in that role, and, you know, as a young person, if you're trying to advise people, and mostly these are people who are in a season of their lives where they've acquired some wealth, which means they're generally older, and you are young, this automatically is a headwind. It's just a hurdle. So what I found myself doing was putting on, instead of a necktie, a tie-on bow tie. And this was fantastic because one, it's just a crowd pleaser. Like if you're doing it on me, just try it sometimes. Walk into your church on the Lord's Day wearing a bow tie and you will have a totally different experience. Yeah. The second thing was the older people love this because it conveyed something different. If only that as a young person, I was identifying with a classic style. Yeah. And I'm telling you somehow this changed the whole context and setting of a conversation. It really was remarkable. So it made me realize that while it can be used in a nefarious way, the way in which we present ourselves can often be really, really helpful at providing access. So I just bring that up like it's, that's, I don't know, you can take it or leave it, but you can email us at info at reformbrotherhood.com or go to t.me backslash reformbrotherhood and jump into some conversation with us. And you let me know, where do you work? What do you wear? What do you think? It's true. I have I have my sandwich affirmation now if we're ready to proceed. We are ready to proceed. The floor is yours. So I'm a little bit ashamed that I didn't know this before. Um, but the the guy who does the vocals for our theme song, he I mean it's we didn't write the theme song. It's not like we hired this guy to do the vocals. Uh, the the song is originally by an artist named uh, called Avicii. I don't think his yes. name was Avicii, but the, the his stage name was Avicii. Um, he has since died um, relatively young, but the vocals were done by a guy named Dan Kaminsky. Mm -hmm. And I, I didn't, I didn't put this together, but Dan Kamin, uh, Kaminsky, Dan Timinsky, T-Y-M-I-N-S-K-I is also the guy who did the vocals for Man of Constant Sorrows but, uh, from, um, oh, Brother Where Art Thou, Sa nice same stuff. guy. And he, and I don't know why, I mean, we're talking eight years, you know, nine years after the song first came out. Um, he has since released a sort of, I don't know if you want to call, you've listened to the song, right? I sent it to you. Yes. I don't know what the style would be called. It's kind of bluegrass, but it's a little bit like driving bluegrass or like maybe like yeah. rock bluegrass. Um, it's not like Southern rock, but it's definitely more than just like a traditional bluegrass twang. He's released a version of the song 
uh, that is just, it's just him and his band doing the song. And there's no like synth synthesized music underneath it or, or bass lines. It's all, it's a very typical bluegrass, but maybe a little bit more aggressive. So I've been listening to this song basically on repeat since my wife sent it to me. Uh, I just, I just think it's an amazing song. I really like it. I mean, I've always liked the the song that we that we've taken for That's our great. theme song, uh, and and even the lyrics seem to fit our show and our the goal of our show so perfectly. But um, this version is just so good. It's just so so good. Like I never get sick of it. I listened to it like 15 times the other day. And I just never get sick of it. So that's my that's my second layer of affirmations for today is the song Hey Brother by Dan Tominski. You can find that, by the way, in like any place where you catch your music. Yeah. It's on all the apps. It is a really lovely arrangement. I would call it something like it's somewhere between, like you said, bluegrass and like driving folk. Yeah. So it definitely has all of those instruments, which it, honestly, it's kind of like a where art thou brother like kind of version yeah. of this song but yeah, oh yeah. you'll find it to be kind of comforting like a big bowl of mac and cheese or tomato yeah. soup because it's the same voice and you're going to just find it arranged slightly differently it's enough to give you a lot of interest by the way like avici i mean we, we just have to give him credit for it's a really beautiful melody i, I don't yeah. know if everybody, some people might only know the song from like the first like 20 seconds that they hear before we start talking before i'm like well come but listen <laughs> You should listen to the whole thing. It's very good. It's a very interesting song. There's a lot that's noble in the lyrics, but of course we identified with it merely because of that. Hey, because it says it has the word brother in it. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, but it, you're totally right. I love that. That's that's a, the right way to conclude the affirmations and section. Go listen to that. You definitely should. So, let's get into this eighth word here. And we, I jokingly said we only had five words. That is like five literal words last week when we were looking at Exodus 20. And this week we've dropped it down to just four. Yeah. We paired it back by one. And Exodus 20, 15 reads to us, you shall not steal. And boy, is there so much impounded in this statement. And I thought as I was preparing for this and just thinking about our conversation, where do we even begin? Because we could just turn this thing over and over, shake it up, and everything's so much stuff is going to fall out. It's a bit like what falls out first. So I'm just going to ask you, you tell me what, what kind of part or kind of view you want to start with, and we'll just go from there. Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the things that I've been um, really striving with, struggling isn't the right word because it hasn't been difficult, but striving with, striving, uh, striving with is the right way to think about it as I've wrestled with and, and tried to understand the law and how it how it applies to us and, and what we do with it, is the law is a standard that it, we're held up against to compare ourselves, not just to the outward conformity to it, but to the motivations right. behind it. Right. And just like last week when we talked about adultery, it, that, that command, yes, it has this sort of like very straightforward outward application. This is another one of those. It has a very straightforward outward application. If something does not belong to you, don't take it. Um, don't don't take something from someone else that does not belong to you. Um, you know, we could get into all sorts of interesting 
ethical quandary kinds of edge case questions about is this stealing, is that stealing? Um, someone in the the Telegram chat the other day asked if I if I, I'm driving down the road and I see a set of tools on the side of the road and they appear to be abandoned, if I stop and pick them up, is that stealing? And my response was like, well, if if the tools are on the road in front of someone's house, then probably. If you're driving in the middle of the Nevada desert and they're on the side of the long stretch of deserted road, then probably not. We could get into all those conversations and those are fine, interesting conversations to have. But at the end of the day, this this commandment, just like the last commandment was about having a pure understanding of um, the propriety of sex and the propriety of sex, particularly within uh, monogamous heterosexual marriage. Um that's the outward application, but the inward application is all about what our heart is doing, what our mind is doing. I think this commandment really is is the same thing. It's present in the Ten Commandments because it's the moral law of God, but it calls us to reevaluate our understanding and our relationship with material wealth and material goods. That's really what I think what the law is trying to do for us in terms of the law examining us and calling us to account. It's about our our lust for things and our lust for money and our greed, that's what the law is about. So I think that's that's maybe where we should spend most of our time is kind of talking through what what do we do as Christians with this seemingly insatiable drive for stuff. I think that's that's a, a I'm gonna steal I'm gonna steal your phrase here. That's the eternal contemporary question here, right? There's never been a time where people are not obsessed with things to have like possessions and 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 wealth. What do we do with that? Right. Yeah, that, I mean, I think you're right on, of course. So let me comment on that. I'm going to raise you one, and then let's talk about both. So I think what's really fascinating about this is I think there might be more condemning in this than maybe maybe some of all we've talked about so far. Of course, like everything that has preceded this are all real antecedents to getting this idea of you shouldn't steal. And there is in some way this sense in which it's easy to point fingers at theft that is like material and physical, the kind of theft from which we can protect ourselves by like locking our doors at night. But there is like a more insidious or like almost like pernicious kind of of theft, which is when we have value that we ought to give and we fail to provide that value. Yeah. And so it's, it's a both end, right? It's everything, of course, that you just said, like we all have these wanton notions. We all want to have more than we actually have. We're all, at our core, dissatisfied with the things that God has given us. And we will entertain to such a great degree acquiring other things, even if we do so unlawfully, unjustfully, or sneakily, if you will. And so that, in some ways, you can protect yourself against. However, what's more difficult is, like in the Western world, I always say things like, here's what every person needs. You need a good doctor, a good mechanic, and a good banker. And part of the reason why is because those individuals have asymmetric knowledge. They have an advanced skill set where you actually need the value that they are purporting to give to you, but you cannot discern on your own whether they're giving you all of the value that they're saying that they're saying they are. Each yeah. of us has like, that kind of skill set. So like for instance, when I think we come into the Lord's house on the Lord's day and we withhold our corporate worship either in our intentionally or whether in the way in which we sing or participate, we are in some ways robbing God. I mean, that's like kind of minor prophet style of stuff. However, it doesn't preclude what's on the face, all the things that you just talked about. So let's let's talk about starting there with like what it means to say, like, listen, we're, we're dissatisfied. 
we are not humbled with the things that we actually own. And so because of this, God actually has to say to us, you, you, he's protecting in some ways, like you said, the sanctity of something which has been conferred, the ownership has been conferred by God to somebody else. And he's saying, you cannot take that thing away. Yeah. And I think that's, that's an interesting um, question, right? So what, one of the questions that comes up sometimes in discussions of, of theft and, and what on is like the nature of ownership. And, and I think at its foundational level, God entrusts property. And I don't mean like land, although that's part of this, but entrusts property and ownership to the creature. Right. And that, that's right. actually part of being um, part of being an image bearer is, is that we have the ability as image bearers to actually possess and retain authority and ownership over something. So like I might talk about my dog's toys, but at the end of the day, like I own those toys and I own the dog. Right. So, so it's not as though if, if another dog comes in or a person, if a person for some reason, some hypothetical strange world, some burglar breaks in and steals all my dog's toys, they haven't stolen from my dog. They've stolen from me. They broke in and they stole my things because my dog is not the kind of creature that has the ability to own things. Just like if I want to take my dog's toys, I don't have to ask permission. I just take the toys and that's not theft. Um, so there's a there's an element of ownership and um, possession that has to do with the, the Imago Dei. And, and that ties into why it is such an affront to steal from someone else. Because it is, in a sense, it is a similar sin to murder, right? It's an affront to the image of God in that person that you have have basically stated they're not they're not Lord over what God has granted to them. And I, I say that a little with a little bit of trepidation, but God establishes people as authorities and possessors over certain things. So when I go in and take something, not only am I robbing that person, but I've also taken it unto myself to say, I know God entrusted it to this person, but I'm going to take it for myself anyways. So there's a lot to theft that has to do more with um, the violation of another person in their personhood and in their image bearerness than you might even think at first. Uh, and we kind of commented on this last week a little bit that, that there's this relationship in the Old Testament between idolatry and adultery where idolatry is consistently pictured as adultery uh, committed against the Lord. And I think that theft in a certain sense is a similar kind of thing that when I steal from somebody, whether it's a physical good that I take or whether I commit fraud, I steal by deception or, or something along those lines. Um, I'm, I'm actually affronting the image of God in that person in a way that it it's, um, it's also no no coincidence that God pictures things that the Israelites do as theft, right? He talks about how they've robbed right. God. And, and he talks about it a lot in terms of like withholding their offering, withholding their sacrifice. But even their obedience and their devotion is sometimes it, when they don't give exactly. that to the Lord, exactly. it's pictured as theft of some yeah. sort. So I think just like we drew that parallel last week, we have to draw that parallel this week and understand that this this goes deeper than just that belongs to someone else and now I've taken it and that's a violation. It's really that I have almost treated that person as though they're my, that person is my possession and I'm entitled to do what I want with their stuff. That's that's not uh, the model of ownership and private ownership that the Bible gives us. 
And of course, Jesus himself is very clear. It, we have a linear connection with Satan in that activity because it, Jesus tells us that he comes to kill, destroy, and steal. Yeah. And God is the, does the exact opposite of all those things. He's always giving. He's always giving life. So to make sure that if something, of course, has been vouchsafed to you to care for, to promote or fail to promote its greatest value, to uphold that either by misidentifying or using poor weights or whatever it is in your industry, whatever it is in your profession, whatever it is in your talents and your abilities, by withholding. The withholding isn't just like some innocuous action by which you, you know, I could give a little bit more, but I'm not. This is where there's great conviction because right. in some ways, only you and God know if you're giving your all to all the things that God has given you to do. Right. And if you do not, then we are transgressing this particular commandment. And as you said, the problem isn't necessarily in the compromised human nature. That is to say, well, we shouldn't have any treasures. So many other worldviews like Buddhism and others will say, yeah, divorce yourself from all those things. You don't need anything, not anything, both in heaven and earth. What I love is that Jesus, as the creator, is so much more pragmatic than that because he knows us intimately. So for instance, maybe I mentioned this before in our conversations, but in behavioral finance, which is really a whole discipline of trying to understand people's cognitive and emotional biases when it comes to things of value, with how they actually behave, not like textbook, like quadratic equation kind of value maximization right. and terminal value stuff, but like how you actually behave. There's a well-known theory. You can look this up and you're going to find some so many amazing tests of this. It's called the endowment theory. And the endowment theory says that ownership of something, whatever it is, endows it with additional value, additional intangible value, such that something that you own, you will ascribe greater value to than something that you do not own. Yeah. Now, we all kind of know this because like, you might see somebody at a garage or tag sale, whatever it's called in your part of the world, selling something and be like, oh, it is not worth that thing. But they own it. And so by nature of that, they tend to value it more highly. It can also be flipped in reverse and explained this way. The pain of losing a particular value is greater than the joy of an equivalent gain. So in other words, like to lose a dollar hurts more than to gain a dollar. Because of this, and that's just, we all kind of intuitively know that when we think about it. This is why I'm floored by in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. That is God acknowledging the fallenness of humankind in the endowment effect. He's basically saying, listen, the problem is not that you're treasuring something. It's that you're treasuring something that is possible to be lost and in fact will be lost. And you as humanity are not just risk adverse. That is, you hate to take risk. You're actually loss adverse. You hate to lose. And so because of that, any kind of stealing to acquire things which you will lose in the end anyway is at best a fool's errand, and at worst, like you said, violates the identity and the value placed by God in his creatures and the creatures that he's given to have dominion over things, and that dominion often is a literal ownership. And so what he's saying is, listen, here's the deal, loved ones. You want treasures, and you should, but you want the treasures that cannot be compromised, can't be destroyed, can't be taken away from you, that you can't lose. And so because of that, we have to seek after these greater things, seeking after the kingdom of God. So I love this because all of that for me is, is laid bare. It's right in this commandment. Do not steal. It's again, it's a prohibition that is a protection for us. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, um, so much of the law, I don't know that we've had this conversation before specifically, but 
the law itself does not give us any power to fulfill it. So, so the law is, I'm sure that we mentioned it briefly when we talked about the three uses of the law and the nature of the law. The law is not, um, although it is given to us for our sanctification and it is by, uh, by the law that we understand what perfection is, the law doesn't enable us to follow it. So just knowing that we shouldn't steal or maybe if we want to make it more abstract, just knowing that we should not be greedy doesn't somehow give us the power not to be greedy. And and what what the Apostle Paul seems to say is actually it does the opposite. When we're told not to covet, that that makes us covet even more. You know, when you say when you say to somebody, um, you really shouldn't be obsessed with uh with your financial status, it, it tends to make us just think about our financial status even more. And so the law, the law doesn't enable us to do any of this. It's just a mirror. It's just a mirror that helps us to see the nature of our heart. And I think a simple test is this endowment effect, this endowment, uh, you might even want to call it like an endowment fallacy, is that um, I have a particular, I'm just looking at my bookshelf to my right here. I have a particular copy of Joel Beakey's Systematic Theology. That's my copy. I have not even, other than to browse through it, I've not even opened the third volume. It is not materially different than any other copy of that book that exists. It's not signed. It's not special in any sense. But if someone were to come in here and take that book off my shelf and take it away from me, I would be more upset about that than if they stole a copy of that from Barnes and Noble. Exactly. Right. I would be personally offended because they took my copy of that. Um, that is the greed of the human heart in full display, right? And now it's not wrong to be upset if someone steals something from you. In fact, it's quite right to be upset if someone steals something from you. But there is an outsized anger at the fact that something steals something from me than there is to just the fact that someone steals something. And I think that is where the, the greed of the human heart comes in, is that in a certain sense, we value our possession of a thing more than we value the righteousness of it not being stolen. Right. So that, that to me is where this, I think this commandment really lays me bare is that I, I don't consider myself to be a particularly materialistic person. I mean, I have, I have nice things. I think having nice things is great. It's fine. There's nothing wrong with Christians who have nice things or who have, a, a wealthy lifestyle. I, I'm not one of those people that thinks that all Christians need to be like wearing hand-me-down clothes and shopping at thrift stores. I don't think that's the case. And I don't think that the Bible supports that that's the case. Um, but all that said, we definitely live a life of greed and luxury in most cases in the Western world. And when we think about what it is to be willing to give that up, if someone came to me and said, and I say this to my own detriment, I like to think that if someone came to me and said, if you give up your entire your entire book collection, your whole library, if you just give that up, um, you you I, I will guarantee you that three people will be saved. Mm. We all like to think, oh yeah, in a second I would do that. And when it comes down to it, I think most of us would say, yeah, absolutely I would do that. But there would be a twinge of question, I think, in our hearts, even if it's an instantaneous decision, it's not a foregone conclusion kind of decision for most of us. Um, I think we would all kind of go, oh, but I really like my books or, oh, I really like my car. I really like my nice shoes or my, my, my dress shirts, whatever it is, whatever your particular 
thing is that you are attached to in a materialistic way, we would all have that twinge. And, and again, I'm not trying to say that, you know, I'm not advocating for some sort of communism where we don't have any possessions and everything belongs to the community. I'm not advocating for like an ascetic lifestyle where, where we don't own anything and we, we wear, you know, potato sacks instead of clothing. But we, we should be quick and prompt to sacrifice our own possessions for the good of those around us, for the good of God's kingdom, for whatever it might be. And I know just speaking in my own life, sometimes it's a struggle to take the money out of the bank account to put into the offering plate. Right. Um, not, not a struggle in that it's hard to do, but a struggle in that I don't really want to do it sometimes. I, there, there are other things I would rather spend that money on. That to me is the heart condition of the the violation of the eighth commandment that is kind of endemic in all of us. It's it's there in all of us, um, just like we talked about with with blasphemy. There's no there's really no way to live and to even speak uh, in a way that is not blasphemous on some level, right? We 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 kind of talked about how there's these minced oaths and and we we can't even think about how language would function without these sort of like veiled blasphemies that we use on a regular basis. Because there's no way to express that that statement of your heart without utilizing a statement that is not either directly or indirectly blasphemous. Well, that's because your heart is wicked and gross, right? And so when when we when we have a hesitation or an emotional bugaboo when we take the money out of our bank account and put it in the, the offering plate or whatever it might be, it's the same thing. Our heart has to lead in these things. It has to be the front the front man that runs the show and brings these things forward. And the only hope for that is, is the Holy spirit working in us. Like we can't, we can't drive that and generate that in ourselves. Um, you know, God loves a cheerful giver. Well, that's not great news for us if it's not for the Holy right. spirit, because none of us would be cheerful givers if it was up to us. Right. I think that's an important point. It's one of the things I've been thinking about a lot as we've gone through these conversations, the 10 words that just merely to have these applied and laid on top of society, such that they are given an outward conformity to their obedience would still leave us feeling like we're not satisfied with our communal relationship because we want somebody to give us a gift, for instance, because they love us and not out of like perfunctory duty or out of some kind of like rote obligation. We want the heart attitude behind right. it. And of course, that is what God is driving us to. To me, the damning thing about the eighth commandment is that it applies to all things of value that we have been given. And we know that all good gifts come from God. So this means that there is a stealing from God, which resolves around attention. You know, right. they are thieves that rob God of any part of his day. Again, it's why this comes after the fourth commandment. It's not just a part of the day only, but the whole day must be dedicated to God. There's a kind of stealing from others that isn't about physical things, but it's about if you've been entrusted with the gospel, there is literally in some kind of extreme way, a stealing way of souls by yeah. robbing men of truth, by not being able to have the kind of wherewithal and bravery to speak into people's circumstances, <laughs> the truth of the gospel, which you know that God has given you freely. And then, and I think this one is really hard. There is this kind of, I think what the Puritans called like a shop thief. And that's the one who steals in selling the one who uses false weights or measures and steals yeah. from others. What is their due? And that could be the due of respecting people, the due of reacting and judging too quickly the do of being frustrated and upset with others when we we really ought to have care and concern over their well-being. And then, of course, that applies to all kinds of weight measures in our own work. That is, do you contribute implicitly or otherwise to theft of your employer by the way in which you work? 
where you're not giving your best work, you're not prepared to work, or you find yourself wandering away from that work or settling for what is the minimal expectation. Quiet quitting could be theoretically a, a great, I would say, way in which we have committed you know, an atrocity against this eighth commandment. You know, it's, we need to be the kind of people, again, we've talked about this all along. You cannot, there is no way in which you should take in this conversation. Well, I need to do a lot on my own to somehow make sure that I'm always focused. I'm always giving everything. You will exhaust yourself to no end, but it is comforting to know that all the things we just talked about, all the forbidden things that Jesus has obeyed them in perfectly with the right attitude. Yeah, And it's done all these things and credited that righteousness to you such that when we see the eighth commandment, we're not saying not just only woe is me, God, because I'm a transgressor of your law, but also how great is your son, Jesus Christ, who makes a way for me to understand what it means to steal in all of these ways, redeems me from theft because I am a thief and then restores me to a place where I might go forward, even though it's imperfect with some obedience to this, as you said, giving the indicative and the imperative. That's what God provides away from the law so that we might find ourselves by the holy power of the Holy Spirit, able to understand and obey in a way that we could never before. Yeah. So I think like there's just so much here for us to like really chew on that theft is so much bigger than we ever thought it was. And yet it's, it's never smaller than the fact of just understanding that anything that is due somebody else, anything that ought to be owed to them, anything that is already theirs, if you take that away or fail to provide it, then we transgress the law. Yeah. And I think it even goes beyond um, that certainly is true that if we withhold something from someone else that they deserve, that that is theft. But the, the reform tradition has consistently also said that not being willing to be generous with your exactly. with your material goods, whether that's money or whether that is physical goods, the food you have, your house, your home, the, 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 the stuff that God has given you, if you're not willing to be generous with that and to give freely with that, that's a form of theft too. And, and that's, you know, we talked about this when we talked about um, off tithes and offerings, that there's this sort of strange dynamic in the New Testament that we're obligated to give freely. <laughs> and like, that's a strange, incoherent sentence uh, on its face, but that's the reality of what the New Testament teaches, that we're obligated, we have an obligation to give generously, freely, and joyfully to our church. But that that's an obligation that every Christian has. Right. Now, that doesn't have a default percentage assigned to it. Um, the New Testament doesn't say 10%, it doesn't say 15%, it doesn't say 5%. It says give out of your, out of your abundance, sacrificially, according to your means, voluntarily. You're obligated to do that. And I think that this is also the nature of the Eighth Commandment, right? We are to um, to be generous with what we have. When I have, um, when I have a coworker at work who forgets their lunch and they, they, they don't have um, they don't have any money to buy lunch, either they've forgotten or they just can't afford it, um, I should feel like I'm obligated to generously purchase that person lunch. Now we have responsibilities and it's not saying that you, you do this to the detriment of your own responsibilities, but if God has given you the means to be able to be generous to somebody and you don't do that, that is a form of breaking the eighth commandment. And I think that's something that a lot of Christians don't want to hear, right? We, we're very comfortable saying, love your neighbor as yourself, but we're not so comfortable saying, uh, when I, when I'm in need, I want my neighbor to help me. 
Therefore, when my neighbor is in need, I should help them. We're not super comfortable with that, even though that's a straightforward application of that principle, right? If, if I have a need, if I don't have money to purchase food and my neighbor dies, I would like it if they helped supply me with food until I can buy my own food. Well, the flip side of that is that if your neighbor doesn't have food, you should help supply them with food. Um, and the, the scriptures are pretty clear that our neighbors are not just those within the household of God, that, but that's everyone around us. We have a more intense and more acute obligation to those in the immediate family of God, but that doesn't mean that we don't help those around us. So I, I think that, you know, this really is, um, all of the commandments are like this, but there, there is definitely a, a heightened sense in this commandment that this is about the heart. This is about you not being stingy with what God has given you. God has given you what he has given you in order to use it, not to grasp it and to hold it. That doesn't mean don't save. It doesn't mean don't be wise. I'm not, we're not saying any of that. Um, there are certainly people that are overly generous to the detriment of their family and to the detriment of their own stability and livelihood that we certainly would not say you should do that. But there are lots of people who have the ability to be generous um, to other people that simply are not. And and that that is the wicked heart breaking the Eighth Commandment in a very straightforward sense that we may not always connect if we just look at it on a surface level. And if I can give like a plea, maybe like a call to action at the end of this conversation, and I hope people will be generous and charitable toward me as I try to articulate this, it would be something like this. We've talked about being given value in lots of ways. Some of that is financial and physical. It's wealth in the way that we think about it. It's mammon, and that's fine. It applies there as much as anywhere else. It also applies to things like time, talents, abilities, gifts. And so here's where the call comes. Your church needs you. Your local body needs you. They, yeah. need, they need your gifts. They need your talents. They need your energy. They need your time. So if you ever think to yourself, listen, I don't feel particularly qualified or capable to do any particular thing. Undoubtedly, at some point, your church has a, a work day where they need somebody just to come and weed, or they need somebody to watch children, or they need somebody to clean up after an event. If you're not involved in your church where you are giving of yourself, might I very humbly but cogently and crisply say to you, challenge you with this idea, you may in fact be breaking this commitment. Yeah. You may be stealing from both brothers and sisters because you are withholding value that ought to be paid due to God, to his people, to the encouragement of the saints, to the edification of the saints. All of this is part of what God requires to us. And loved ones, I'll be the first to say, it's just, it's a difficult law. There's a sharp edge on this, but it's that sharp edge that challenges us to remember that Philippians 2 style, when every knee bows before Jesus and says that he is Lord of all, what they're also affirming is because he is Lord, everything he has given in the moral law is absolutely correct. And this is one of those points. And that is do not steal. So I would encourage you, please, please, please go and ask where there's a need in your church. And you should know, I think if you're hearing my voice and you're feeling any kind of sense of conviction, I'm trusting that that is because you know that there ought to be something you should be giving towards, not just financially. In fact, sometimes it's really easy to broker that by writing the check, sending the Venmo, creating the, the ACH, like it's easy sometimes to give. It's hard to give of ourselves yeah. in form of things like time and resource and attention. But all of those things are in fact of greater wealth because they are priceless. When they run out, there is not a renewable resource. Right. So please go and talk to your elders, your pastor. 
I, I presume that if you're involved in your church, you know where there might be needs, even if you have to be a, a be- beginner at something and try something new. Would you please do that? It's just so important that, especially as people who in some ways ascribe to this reformed tradition of faith, that we really put our money where our mouth is, that we don't just find ourselves or get the perception that we're eggheaded, but that we're interested in theology for its own application because we want to love God. We want to serve him better. And so we need to understand what it means that we may be stealing from others and find a way by God's grace to be enlightened to that fact, for it to be illustrated to us, to hate sin in all its odious colors as we see them, as the Holy Spirit reveals them to us, and then to actually do something about that. And so I would encourage you, get involved. Just get in the game because, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, what, what do you think? I yeah. I, I mean, sometimes sometimes what your church needs you to do is write a check. Like, we, we should acknowledge that. That sometimes yeah, sometimes true. that is what the church just needs that you to do. Um, but all of that said, just to use the example you're, you're giving of kind of like coming in and doing some yard work. Um, in, in a situation where either you can come rake the yard and take let's say it's a, a moderately sized church property. Uh, it, it takes you three hours to do all the raking, right? The amount of time it takes you might be a little bit longer than it takes a professional landscaper to come in and do it, but it's going to be a lot less expensive. And, and I know Jesse is probably better. Jesse is definitely better equipped to speak on this than I am, but money as it functions in our society is basically as like a conversion rate for labor. Right. So I I do work for one person and they gave me money and then I use that money to purchase goods and services um, instead of doing the work of of making those goods and performing those services myself. So I'm converting the labor that I give to my employer into goods and services through this thing of money. So whether you do the work yourself uh, of, of weeding the church garden or raking the lawn or mowing it or cleaning the bathrooms, or whether you provide the money to pay someone to do it, those are actually really equivalent things. The difference is if you just roll up your sleeves and do it yourself, it's probably more efficient in terms of how that labor is used. So I think I think what you're saying is right. We shouldn't draw we shouldn't draw a hard distinction between withholding our labor from somewhere or something that needs it and it, and in many ways deserves it and withholding our money. Both of those things are forms of theft, right? But if you're not going to do the labor, then maybe you need to consider writing the check, right? If you're not willing to come and rake the yard, if, if they put out a call to say, uh, we really need people to come come rake the church um, yard this year, or, hey, we, we, we want to save a little bit of money on um, snow removal. And so rather than, than pay the crew that comes and, and shovels the sidewalks for our church, we're just going to have a sign up to do the shoveling instead. Maybe you should really think about signing up for that. And if you're not able or willing to sign up for it, maybe you should think about being the one that pays for that person to come and shovel it rather than the general church budget. And again, this is not, um, this isn't us trying to impose some sort of extraneous law on you, right? This is a matter of conscience. This is a matter of you looking at the situation you're in and really thinking about how it is that God would have you act in relation to this this principle of do not steal. But these are some practical things for you to think about. Um, you know, does your does your pastor is your pastor starting a new sermon series on the book of Ruth? I'm just I don't know why I picked Ruth, but is your pastor starting a new sermon series? over the summer on the book of Ruth. Well, maybe you should reach out and ask him if he has all the commentaries he needs for that study. 
um, most pastors end up purchasing the, the, the books and the tools that they need to do their job. They end up purchasing that out of their own pocket. Some churches provide a book allowance. A lot don't. So maybe you need to call your pastor and say, hey, I know you're planning on, on starting this new series uh, over the summer. Do you have all the commentaries you need or is there one that I can purchase for you? Right. That's one way you could be generous to your church. That doesn't just involve writing like a blank check to the church, but actually shows that you're invested and understand the needs of the church, understand the needs of the congregation in this particular way. Um, there's all sorts of ways that you can, I think you can fulfill the positive command of this commandment or of this word in a way that shows intentionality and diligence that doesn't just involve putting your name on a check and putting in the offering plate. That's good. That's fine. You should do that. But I think in terms of like going above and beyond the bare minimum, which I think in most cases, sanctification doesn't come by doing the bare minimum, by adhering right. to like the letter of the law. The spirit sanctifies us more often when we strive to exceed the, the explicit commands, the explicit demands of the law. So while the command in reference to your money and the church, the command may require you to, to put a certain percentage of your weekly or monthly income into the offering plate, going above and beyond that looks at, it looks like what are the unique needs of this church, of this group of people that I'm a part of, and how can I fulfill them in a way that other people may not be able to? That's where we're going to see our piety grow. That's where we're going to see our sanctification happen. Not because we drum it up or somehow we generate it, but because that's how the Holy Spirit tends to use our our work in bringing us further along on the road to glory, if that makes sense. It does make sense. And I, we're already over time, but it doesn't matter anymore because this was, this was speaking of uh, value. This was totally free to you. So you can just stop me if you want. <laughs> you can just hit the pause button or you can archive this episode already. But I, I want to add one more thing like as we kind of try to wrap it up. There's so much to be said here. And you're right. I think I, if we can encourage people, it's one good place to start one kind of foil or lightning rod is what you are good at, what it feels like is your jam, where you're in the pocket. So if you have a penchant toward finance, good. Find a way to use that. Ask how you might use that in your church. If you're a musician or you're a budding musician or you're learning something, ask how you might be trained so that you can use that gift yeah. in a more profound way in your, your congregation. Uh, if you love children, you know, my church has this really fantastic ESL, English as Second Language Ministry. And all they're often asking for is if you speak English, you are gifted to come and talk to these students who desperately are there. Many of them in our area are refugees from all over the world. They're trying to learn English. It's spirit card for them to come. And they desperately want people who will just sit with them and let them help them, let them practice their English. And the thing is like, that's a gift that we were given. It's something of value that most in the world would like to have that God gave us. We find normative and in some ways, like so perfunctory and belittling that we don't even think it's anything of value yeah. and there's an opportunity. So I think if you just think about the things that you're good at or things you like to do, you'll find that there's somewhere there's going to be a need. And sometimes even if there isn't a need right now, by you stepping forward and saying to somebody in leadership at your church, I want to make sure that I'm available if this need arises, Yeah. then you will be ready and prepared. So maybe you're a carpenter and like you said, somebody can use some help laying flooring or maybe you're a plumber. I mean, everybody needs a plumber. Like plumber, God bless plumbers, right? Like, <laughs> th th so all these like skill sets that God gives His people in this varied way. I'm blown away by the way that God provides for His children. He does that in part by giving us all these amazing skills, and we are in some ways stealing if we do not 
with great volition and initiative, bring those before the Lord in practicality and pragmatism, especially to the local congregation of which you, you are involved, and say, I am ready and willing to help in this way, because here's something of value that God has given me that everybody else doesn't have. And yet they often need, because so many of these things are just life skills. So go do that thing, loved ones. Like we, we all should be challenged to continue to have those conversations and go do that thing. It's funny, you know, this episode is probably the longest so far. And maybe it popped up in an unexpected way, even though we're talking about theft. And yet I think what I've been convicted about even more as we've talked is that I'm very guilty of this in so many ways. Yeah. And it's just lovely for God to, again, conceal in some ways what is the center of this so that we might search it out and find that there's greater depth of meaning in this that brings us more joy, more appreciation of his son who has redeemed us from being covenant breakers of this particular law, and then empowers us, if you, as you've said, through the power of the Holy Spirit to go forward now into the world and to do the opposite of what the devil does, that is provide life, provide value, not be withholding or exacting, but be generous. Yeah, That is so good that God would do that for us. And he'd do it by saying, here's the eighth commandment, do not steal. Yeah. Well, I think uh, rather than steal more of your time, we'll just wrap things up here. Um, thank you so much for bearing with us on this episode. I know it was long, but we, we, we only do the long episodes that we think are valuable and worth doing. So we hope that this has been edifying. We hope that this has given you a lot to think about. Uh, we're going to continue in on this trek through the 10 words, uh, next week and the week after, and then we'll continue with our broader series on systematic theology after that. So all sorts of ways to get involved. Uh, if you've been listening to the show for any amount of time, you know all those things, so I'm not going to report uh, repeat them for you. So until next time, Jesse, honor everyone. Don't steal and love the brotherhood. <laughs>